You guys doing okay tonight? Yeah? I missed out on uh, the group activity or the team games, but I heard uh, they're pretty uh, wild. Some of them were, um, I don't think you want to do the shirt aquarium. Oh, yeah? You don't want to. Yeah, I heard they were really gross. I remember talking to Pastor Matt before he led you guys in games. I was like, oh, what games are you going to do? He's like, you know, um, I'm pretty much just going to do all the games that my previous church wouldn't let me do. So <laughs> that kind of uh, communicated well to me uh, what you guys were in for. Um, I wish I could be there, but uh, at my age, I was just too tired and gassed. And so I took a nap, uh, just like my two-year-old son. Um, yeah, but hopefully you guys enjoyed the festivities, uh, had a good time during free time. Um, just to kind of recap where we are for this weekend, we've been looking at the theme of treasuring Jesus Christ and what that means. And so we started at the very beginning, the first night, um, evaluating and studying how treasuring Jesus Christ requires us to know a person, right? And so uh, we looked at Philippians 3 and what uh, the Bible teaches about knowing Jesus, what, what that consists of. And then this morning, we looked at how knowing Jesus, treasuring Him, should affect, should alter and impact the way we live. That our lives would be transformed and that this is a continual process from the day we accept Jesus to the day when we will finally be with Him. And I, I know it can sound kind of challenging, you know, having to live for Jesus, and it seems like a, such a long process. So what is it that is going to help us endure? What is it that is going to motivate us to keep going on in obedience to Christ, in fighting our sin, in loving um, the gospel and loving others? But what we then need is perspective, right? We need a perspective that moves beyond the day-to-day activity so we have a goal in mind. And that's uh, what we are going to study this night. Um, So we're going to be in Philippians 1, verses 18 to 26. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1. And I'll read our passage for us, and then we will once again pray for God's help. Philippians 1. And our passage for tonight will be verses 18 to 26. So follow along as I read it for us. Paul writes, and he says in verse 18, second half, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. God, I know a lot of us are 
tired, maybe exhausted. Lord, we're having a lot of fun at retreat. And we pray for your help now to give us the energy and the heart to receive your word with gladness. To know that it is so necessary for our spiritual life. That you would grant us the eyes to behold Jesus Christ as infinitely more precious than anything else in this world. And that we would see him as so valuable that our lives would be centered upon him. That you would give us a perspective beyond what the world offers or even what we want ourselves. Lord, that as you shape our hearts, you would make us more and more like your son. And so use your word to feed our souls, to nourish and encourage us that we would grow in Christ's likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure for a group of this size, some of you have been to maybe soccer camp, science camp, some sort of camp, or even on missions, right? And when you go to these maybe week-long activities, you're there, and your sole focus is whatever that particular thing is. If it's soccer camp, your sole focus from when you wake up to when you sleep is practicing various drills or, or playing scrimmages with others. Or if you're at science camp, you're hitting your textbooks, learning, I don't know, chemistry and stuff, whatever you guys learn at science camp, and you're doing all these experiments in the labs. Or if you're on missions, like if you've gone missions with maybe your parents or uh, with Lighthouse Church, uh, when you wake up, you know that there are things to do. Maybe you're building a, a house for other people or going around spreading news about a VBS you're putting on. And for the time that you are at this camp or on mission, everything you do is filled with intention, with purpose. That you know that your conversations, if you're on mission, should be centered on Jesus. That you're there to share the good news of Christ. Or if you're at soccer camp, you're there to go over the playbook, strategize better on how to develop as a player. See, when you're at these events, these camps, these mission trips, you understand why you're there and what you're doing. And yet when it comes to the Christian life, a lot of us lose focus because the extent of time we're here on earth is so long that we kind of miss the purpose of why we're still around. And yet if we study the scriptures, what we find is God not only saves us, but then God sends us out with an intended purpose, with a mission statement. That the Christian life, being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Christ, ought to be filled with purpose. And if you look at the writings of the Apostle Paul, like we have been in the book of Philippians, this becomes crystal clear to us. Here's a guy who understands what he's heading and what he's doing in life. Every action, every word, every breath, he takes is purposeful how and why well we need to see how Paul sees life we need a view that reaches life and death we need perspective 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 that comes when we treasure Jesus Christ and Paul is going to show us how in our passage tonight now Paul begins this section with joy. And in the previous passage, 
what he does when he's talking to these Philippians, to this church, is he kind of informs them on how he's doing. He reports to them about his situation. And if you read those verses, what you'll discover is that the apostle is in a bind, literally. He's in chains. He's under house arrest. And yet, strangely enough, even though he's locked away, he tells the Philippians, hey, I'm all right. I'm doing okay. Why? Well, because all his attention and concern is not upon his present circumstance, but all he desires is that God would be honored. Now, whether in pretense or in truth, the gospel is preached and Christ is proclaimed. Isn't that crazy? If you think about this apostle, there is something different about him. Because Paul understands the purpose of his life, he's untouchable. I mean, this guy cannot be put down. He can't be defeated. His enemies are coming up to him, trying to figure out ways to discourage or destroy him, only to fail every single time. You know, they say, Paul, we're going to kill you. And he says, cool, to die is gain. I'll get to be with Jesus. And then they say, fine, fine, we backtrack. We're going to let you live. And he says, that's cool too. I can continue serving Christ, bearing much fruit for his glory. And he says, whoa, 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 fine, we'll just beat you up, you know, beat you to a pulp. And he says, cool, I love to share in the sufferings of Christ, like we studied the first night. And then they're like, all right, we don't know what to do with you, so we're just going to throw you in jail. And he's like, all right, that's, that's cool as well, because then I'll share the gospel and convert all your jailers. I mean, this guy is kind of annoying, right? You'd be both fascinated and frustrated with him. What is it about him that makes him tick? That he's even free when he's physically in prison. Well, it's because he knows what his life is all about. And what Paul does in these verses, in our passage tonight, is he turns from his trial to his life motto. He reveals what motivates him. He tells us why he can endure his change, what drives him to live, what is the perspective that enables him to look past the prison bars and even look past death itself. Verse 21. Verse 21 is famous, familiar. You might have memorized it. But everything can be condensed and bottled down to verse 21. When he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. All of us are going to have to deal with the question of why am I here? What is the purpose of life? And Paul gives his answer. He summarizes it in verse 21. This is what it means to treasure Jesus. This is what it means, in other words, to be a Christian. It's to see life and death in a special way, in a unique manner that the world doesn't. And Paul only gives us two parts to this Christian perspective. Living is Christ and dying is gain. So that's how we'll break down our passage Verse 21, as you can tell, is very easy to read, very easy to understand, right? There's no SAT words here, no advanced reading comprehension required. This verse is simple. This verse is straightforward. And that's precisely why it's hard. Because its simplicity and straightforwardness is also what makes it so deep, so relevant. There is not a corner or speck of existence that verse 21 doesn't affect, doesn't address. After all, he's talking about grand things, right? Life and death. And this is the giant umbrella we all live under that we all will experience. It doesn't matter 
if you're young or old, Asian or white, rich or poor, whether you're the president of the United States of America or a ballerina, it doesn't matter. We live and we die. But what distinguishes the Christian is how we do both. How we handle and view both. And again, Paul provides his mission statement here. He teaches the perspective of the Christian. For those who treasure Christ, they first see living is Christ. Living is Christ. Now what you have to notice first about this verse is the bad grammar. Right? The verb is incomplete. We expect Paul to follow up to live is with a verbal idea. That's how we would write it. Right? We expect him to say, to live is loving Jesus. Or to live is obeying God's word. To live is knowing Christ. But Paul doesn't say that. He defies the law of grammars. And he summarizes everything in one word. He consolidates all of life and condenses it down to, to live is Christ. And that's it. You know, I can explain to you how, for me, to live is working on my jump shot. Or to live is spending money on the latest basketball shoes. Or to live is playing pickup basketball games. Or I could simply condense it all and say, ball is life. And that says everything, right? You get what I'm all about. It says everything because everything is put into that one word, centered upon basketball. And this is what Paul is doing. He is packaging everything in his life into one box. He is putting all of his eggs into one basket, one single, ultimate, consuming object. Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. I think the application is pretty obvious. Students, if you had to summarize your life, what would it come down to? You know, if I said, surprise, test time, and I gave you a sheet of paper with this sentence on it, with a big blank, to live is, how would you fill it in? What would the sentence of your life be? To live is basketball. To live is shopping. To live is having fun. To live is eating good food. To live is friends. To live is money. What would it be for you? For Paul, his life is Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20, the apostle is bursting with conviction and he expresses it again and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, the, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's automatic for Paul. He's got to express Jesus because he's been consumed. He's been enveloped by Jesus. You know what this means? It means Jesus is not number one. He's the only number. I think we often do ourselves a disservice by thinking that Jesus needs to be our first priority in life and then everything else can come after. Now I understand that idea, but I think in can be quite misleading because it slots Jesus into a place, one place. It restrains and limits him, but Paul is not speaking about what place Jesus finishes in or getting your priorities straight. It's not like Christ makes the top of your list 
and then you can put in everything else after. No, Jesus is supposed to be number one, number two, number three, number five, number 56, number 73, number 152, and so on. If you want to talk about priorities, your priority is Christ. You can't confine him. You can't contain your God. I mean, who is following who? Does Jesus follow you, or do you follow Jesus? If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, well, then Christ is supposed to be in everything. He's supposed to be in your hobbies. He's to be in your thinking, your studies, your classwork, in your possessions, your relationships, your dreams, your desires, your ministry, your church, your time, your fun, and what you love. Christ is to be in your life, all of it. You see, it's not so much a pecking order or ranking ladder as it is a lens. And just as I can't go through life, as you can tell, without seeing through the lens of my glasses, you know, my eyes are small, my vision is bad, everything has to be seen through my spectacles, my glasses. And so the same, Christian. You're not meant to go through life without seeing through the lens of the gospel. That everything is filtered through the spectacle of Jesus Christ. And this is both challenging and convicting. Because it is very different from how we view and live life. For many of us, living for Jesus, well, that happens at church on a Sunday. Or in our morning quiet times. Or when we're away at retreat. You know, when my Bible is open, then hello, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as soon as it's shut closed, well then goodbye, God. And we go on with our day. We get on with our lives. And what we are essentially doing is we are boxing Christ. Jesus is Jesus here. But my school is school here. And sports are sports. And friendships are friendships. But that's not the way we are to live. Because... School is about Jesus in our school. That sports are about Jesus in our sports. That friendships are about Jesus in our friendships. So that one of the reasons you work hard and excel in the classroom is to show how you are diligent to honor God with the gift of education He has entrusted to you. Not just to test well or to set yourself up for academic success. One of the reasons you play sports is to demonstrate how having self-control in your speech and being an encouraging teammate is more important than dominating your opponent. One of the reasons you have friendship is to show how serving others and sharing the gospel is more important than being served or winning popularity contests. In all these areas, Christ is meant to reign supreme. That's why for Paul, he knows if he's going to survive, if he's going to get out of jail, it means his life will bear fruit. Because his life is about Christ. Look at verse 22. He says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. You see, Paul lives for something greater than himself. Jump down to verse 24. He says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, on the Philippians' account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all 
for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul lives in such a purposeful way that he desires to benefit others and encourage them towards Christ. Why? It's so that when anyone watches or examines Paul, there is no mistake. They'll see what is most valuable to him is Christ. Guys, if people were to observe you, maybe even stalk you in a good way if there is one, if they were to watch how you respond to the teacher you don't like, if they were to see how you spend time at home, if they were to stumble upon the receipt of your purchases, if they were to read the transcripts of the words that you say, what would they see? Would they see Jesus Christ? What would they see as most precious and valuable in your life? Because that's how you fill in the blank. Let me be very honest with you. The reason we are so ineffective in our witness for Christ is not because we think too much or too highly of Him. It's not because we are so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly use, but quite the opposite. We think too little of Him, and we are so earthly minded that we are of no heavenly use. Living is Christ only when we truly believe that there is nothing more to life than honoring Him. And that truth enables Paul to be of full courage and without shame. That truth drives him to remain in the flesh and labor for the gospel. That every second of his life is meaningful because he realizes that every second is an opportunity to live for his Lord and Savior. Junior hires and high schoolers, be encouraged. Even at your young age, your life is significant. The reason you're not zapped up to heaven, you're alive, uh, you're alive right now, is because God isn't done with you. Christian, the reason you're still living and not taken to heaven is because God has intentions, has a purpose for you. Maybe it's to befriend you know, a lonely classmate so you can tell them about Jesus. Maybe it's to, for you to ask forgiveness from someone you've wronged so that you can share about the forgiveness of God. Or maybe it's something as simple and obvious as living as a Christian before your non-Christian parents because there is no other way they will witness the power of the gospel but through their own children's conversion. You know, I don't know the specifics and the details, but I know for all of us, as Christians, to live is Christ. And it's only when we live as Christ, or when living is Christ, that this verse will ever finish properly. When living is Christ, then dying is gain. Our second point. You see, the reason we look forward to being with Christ then is because for us now, He is our ever-growing treasure. And that's why we can announce and declare, well, to die is gain. The perspective of a Christian sees that dying is gain. Now look at how difficult this is for Paul. Back up to verse 22. He says, after, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And we pick up. Yet which I shall choose, 
I cannot tell. Verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. You know, if it was left up to me, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying it's like an inner game of tug of war. He's pulled on both sides to live or to depart. To live or to die. And I think if we really consider what he's saying, it's disturbing to us. Because we don't do this. We don't wake up in the morning and have an inner debate. You know, do I want to live today or do I want to die? You know, I think today I'm going to have to give the slight edge to death. You know, none of us talk like this. We don't think about death and consider it gain. I think if we're brutally honest with ourselves, a lot of us actually fear death. We'll change the channel when we hear about people dying. We'll avoid hospitals or we'll want to leave as soon as possible. Our weekly hobby is not crashing funeral ceremonies. Why? Well, because death is there. We like happy things. We like Disneyland, cotton candy. We like pop tunes over sad ballads. But we need to be watchful about insulating, surrounding ourselves with a mirage of things that make us superficially happy and comfortable. It'd actually be wiser to listen to a smart man named Solomon who wrote this in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. He says, It is better, now pay attention, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. To paraphrase, he's saying there's a lot to learn from death because it will then give us the roadmap to life. Sure, we don't like death, but I suspect that's because we fear what death will cost us. We see dying, not as gain, but as losing. And let me be the first to tell you, if all your fulfillment is found here, if your purpose in life is found in this world, in your status, your wealth, your family, then of course dying is not gain. Because when you die, guess what? You can't take your fancy clothes, your cool phone, your diploma, your house, your friends, your gorgeous girlfriend or boyfriend with you. You will have to leave it all behind. You will lose them. But Paul says dying is gain. Why? Why? Because the one thing he cannot gain in his life on earth is gained in the life to come. The one thing he cannot gain in his life is gained finally in his death. Look at how he speaks of this in verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul concludes, dying is far better because it means being with Jesus. We have it backwards. For most of us, living is gain and dying is Christ. Living is all about figuring out how to buy more toys, have more fun, go on more vacations. Dying, well, we think that's when it's game over and then, sure, we'll go and be with Jesus. But that couldn't be further from the truth. For the Apostle Paul. Dying is gain. Dying is gain because it leads us to what we have been living for. 
Dying is gain because we get to be with our Lord and Savior in all perfection for all time. We finally get the treasure. Confession time, I am over 30. And I know it's shocking to all of you because of my youthful charm, my athletic physique. But the older I get, the more I long for heaven. And you might be wondering why. You know, why, Pastor Alan? It seems like your life is, for the most part, going pretty well. You're pastoring a small but great church. You're married to a beautiful wife. Together you have two kids uh, who are cute. You seem pretty smart, and you're even a handsome lad. And to which I would say, thank you. All those things are very true. Not debatable. But the older I get, the more aware I am of my sin. Because I have been around the block for quite some time. And at my age, I am painfully aware of how sinful I am and how sinful I can still be even today. And I don't say this to express how dying is gain because I will get to escape sin, although that is an added bonus. Dying is gain because the older I get, the more I understand Jesus' love. That he would die for such a sinner like me. So while my sensitivity to my own sinfulness increases through the years, you know what is increasing at a greater intensity? My affection and desire to know and be with the one who would die for me. Because he did. He paid for my sins, all of them. 35 years and counting. You see, students, counselors, all of us, the more you realize how wretched and depraved you are, how sinful you can be, how you deserve nothing but eternal death, the more your heart ought to be warmed by the grace of God, by how patient He is with you, how great of a Savior you have in Jesus Christ. Is that not what makes the gospel so sweet and so good? That you get Him. So yes, at the age of 35, I am still a great sinner. But Jesus Christ is always a greater Savior. Do you see why dying is gain? Dying is the door that brings you home. Dying is gain because you get Him. Death is no longer a threat. Death is merely the entrance into the deepest, most intimate fellowship you will ever have with Jesus Christ. You will be with Him. You know, there's a lot of exciting things about being engaged for marriage. I think some of your counselors might be engaged. Some of you think this is impossible because you believe the other gender still has cooties. But one day, hopefully one day, you'll come around And if God would be gracious, one day you will also be engaged. And the cool thing about being engaged is uh, you get to do new, exciting things. You get to put up a wedding registry so people can sign up to buy you gifts. You get to search for a new apartment, a new house to make a home. You get to call your significant other by a new fancy name, you know, fiancé. That's not how you say it, but it just sounds better that way. But imagine how confused you'd be if you approached someone you knew who was engaged 
and you ask them what they're looking forward to in marriage, only for them to tell you, well, I kind of like being engaged. I wish I could drag out engagement forever. You'd be scratching your head because, well, engagement is not the goal, right? Marriage is. And so you press them further. You insist that they tell you what makes them most excited about marriage. And they finally tell you, well, it's going to be great. Finally, having all these gifts delivered to my house. Or I can't wait to live in our new place. It has such a beautiful view of the ocean. You would still be baffled because that's not the answer. Are you looking forward to being married? The answer is yes to be with the one I love. As a Christian, in this life, from here to death is engagement. To look to heaven isn't to look to where we're going to be and what we're going to enjoy. To look to heaven is to look who, to, at who we will be with and all that we will enjoy with Him. Heaven is where the celebration is. But Jesus Christ is why we celebrate. Guys, what is your definition of heaven? What picture pops into your head? And let me press further. Would heaven be heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Would you be happy, content, satisfied if you were in heaven with all your family and friends, with your bike, with your iPad, your piggy bank, and Jesus was not there? Well, if you answer yes, then of course dying is not gain. If you answer yes, then your heaven is here on earth because it's all you ever wanted, and when you die, you'll be separated from what you love. You see, when you believe that everything you have and want is on this side of life, then it's a no-brainer. You live for this side. You live for this life. But when you come to believe with unshakable conviction, with earnest desire that everything you have and want is on the other side, then it's only logical. You'll want to go there. Because Jesus is there. When Christ is your treasure, you will live faithfully here on earth while longing for heaven because that's where your Savior is. That's when dying is gained. Someone asked this old Puritan named Charles Simeon what he was thinking about on his deathbed. And I love this. He said, I'm not thinking, just enjoying. I'm not thinking, just enjoying. Because he knew it was only a matter of minutes, seconds, before he would be with Christ. Let me close with another story. There's a man named William Borden who kind of demonstrates and is an example of this Christian perspective. This guy was born in the early 1900s, so way before any of us were around, and he came from a very wealthy family. When he was 16 years old, his rich parents blessed him with quite the high school graduation present. He had to travel a trip around the world. So he went to Asia, to the Middle East, and Europe. And you know what he decided when he got home? He told his parents, you know, that was an awesome trip. I think I want to be a missionary. 
and they were devastated. And maybe we're thinking in our minds, no, you bozo. You know, that's not the conclusion you're supposed to draw after traveling and seeing the entire world. He got the same reaction in his days. Everyone thought Borden, William Borden, was out of his mind. He was sitting on a golden ticket, just coast through life on your family's riches, instead of throwing it all away to be a missionary. Why would you do that? And in response, Borden, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. No reserves. Following high school, Borden entered Yale University, and everything, everyone noticed that there was something different about him. And it wasn't just because he was loaded with cash. It was because of his Godward devotion. And during his college years, he wrote a personal entry that said, Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. And that's how he lived. He started a small morning prayer group that spread across campus. And in his first year, it began with only 150 freshmen. And I mean, that's still pretty impressive. But by his senior year, there were 1,300. So 1,300 students meeting in Bible studies and prayer groups. But get this. By graduation time, Borden, again, was already a millionaire. And he had all these jobs lined up, high-paying jobs, allowing him to live comfortably if he wants. He'd be set, again, for life. But he remembered his goal to be a missionary. So in his Bible, he added two more words. No retreats. So no reserves, no retreats. Eventually, Borden entered Princeton Seminary to prepare for the mission field. He finished up his degree, got all his training done, and was set to sail for China, hoping to spread the gospel to the Muslims. But along the way, he contracted spinal meningitis. He never made it. He didn't reach China's shores. William Borden died at the age of 25. Yet it was discovered later on, prior to his death, he had added two more words to the back of his Bible. No regrets. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Now we all ponder, we all wonder, was his life wasted? Well, according to the world, yes. And maybe according to some of us here, yes. But according to God, I would argue no. He lived with ambition, with purpose. To live as Christ, and when he died, it was all gain. I guarantee it to you, when Borden died, he was never more alive. Friends, let me ask, do you want, upon hearing that story, do you want what Borden gave up or what he finally had? No retreat, no reserve, no regrets. The perspective of a Christian clarifies everything. Is living Christ and is dying gain? There's no question more basic, more important than that. Because your answer to that question says everything about you and the kind of price tag you would place upon Jesus Christ. If you understand both the weight and the richness of the good news of the gospel, then to live is Christ. To die is gain. That your life would amount to something more than what this world has to offer. But that your life would amount to Him. He's your greatest treasure here on earth. And He will be your greatest reward in heaven. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would stamp this word upon our mind and sear it upon our hearts. That we would see Jesus as infinitely valuable, as our supreme treasure. And naturally, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that would liberate us, free us, to live with purpose. That every second here can be redeemed for eternal value. That we can speak life into those around us by pointing them to you. That we can be fueled and driven to be an example of Christ. And how we handle conflicts with others. How we approach our schoolwork. How we respond when we're defeated in sports. God, we pray that you would give us hearts to see the gain we have in Christ. That we have a Savior who would die for us. And so therefore, Lord, we live for him. God, continue to teach us and mold us. Use your word and use uh, our small group time in a way that would profit us to be obedient. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.